Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. It is episode 100. (laughs) (laughs) T. Yes. Do you know what, right? Um, I'm quite dumbfounded, really, like to think this all started with a a mobile phone, right? And now, 100 episodes later, it has a resonance. I'm just humbled, man. It's mad humbling. I know what you mean. Like, I mean, for me, and just to say that I've prepared something to say, um, (laughs) I have have neurodiversity, which means sometimes I find it difficult to talk on the spot, but... I feel extremely privileged to work so closely with two of my best friends, yourself and George. You both help me be better and do better and always challenge me to think more critically. But I also feel so privileged because of how many amazing people we've got to speak to over the past three years. We learn so much each episode. I think it's made us realise the type of scholars that we want to be, that appreciate the variety of interventions that sociological thinking and imagining can bring to our lives. And that variety is differing and it's changing and it's multifaceted. I've also learned that it's okay to change your mind. And I know that sounds like a really (laughs) basic thing to say, but I think it's really important to say that sort of thing in 2020. Mm. And I think we also do better when we admit that we're wrong. But also talking to guests, I think, has given us hope for a better world, even though we sort of live in a bit of chaos right now. So I was working out some stats to just introduce 100 episodes to everyone. Oh. And before I was doing it, T, I was thinking, I should have included in these numbers, like how many phones and trainers you've had during this period. <laughs> in the last two weeks, I've done about five phones. Literally. Like- I, d- I don't think we've spoken about your obsession with phones and trainers enough on this on this show, too. Yeah. So we're going to do that more going forward. But yeah, so mm. we started releasing weekly content by around episode 31. And that was after we were the resident podcast, at the British Sociological Association in 2018. So out of the 100 main episodes, that's 69 weekly outputs we've scheduled in total since April 2018. But then obviously the 100 includes what we started in September 2017. And big up Saskia Papadakis, who was with us for the first 18 months of these as well. Over the past three years, we've had 108 different guests included on the main episode and our Terms and Conditions mini-sode offerings released over election periods and the lockdown. And we also started a spotlight series this year with guest hosts in an effort to pass the mic to do better at representing global and local sociologists, anti-racists and community organisers. I guess it's not lost on both of us how lucky we are to record these podcasts, particularly during such turbulent times. And for this reason, we're really grateful to the people that believed in us from the start, the listeners who engage with us on social media, but overall, the listeners in general, you're all legends and we wouldn't be able to carry on without your weekly and consistent support. Also, extremely special shout out as per to our patrons. We're still working on running the podcast in a financially sustainable manner, but you guys have helped us 
so much in getting closer to this point so huge thank you like you could tell Chantel's the organized one she writes shit down right <laughs> she writes shit down <laughs> we met some academics and that's a rarity right people who write books people just read their books but rarely get to meet these people and no. some of these people have become I, I consider them my friends man so we meet up we talk and you see them as human man and that's yeah. I guess that's I guess that's lost in academia because normally there's a textbook or a reference you know what I mean but you actually get to Definitely. meet them and you're thinking, well, ask them questions. And we're so lucky to be able to bring academics on, academics, community organisers, scholars, yeah. all, this sort of, all these people to, to come on the podcast and tell them about how their work can help people imagine and work towards a better world as well. It's episode 100. So <laughs> who is our guest for episode 100? Author of The Clamour of Nationalism, Race and Nation in the 21st Century Britain and assistant professor of sociology at the University of Warwick. It's Valu! <laughs> Thanks for inviting yeah. me, guys. <laughs> Valu, we were saying in the beginning, right? I can't believe we're in where we've done three years of this podcast and we've only just had you on the episode. It's important that you're part of episode 100 because so much of your work has inspired us. And I guess a lot of your work helps us think about what the future looks like and how we organize in the future. <laughs> That's very generous of you to say so. As I was saying to you earlier, actually, perhaps it is fitting I'm the hundredth, not because of any misplaced sense of self-importance, but I happen to be a cricket tragic and there's no more holy <laughs> number than, than a hundred. Yeah. That's particularly fitting. <laughs> as well as we want to talk a little bit about nation and nationalism. And I think it'd be really good actually, Valu. I know this is something that you work on a lot, but given like a definitive definition mm. of what you describe nation nationalism as before we get into the particular topics around the left and the difference between nationalism and populism that we're maybe going to talk about on this episode could you start with that value yes of course absolutely obviously it's a very expansive thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'll just actually attempt firstly a kind of history of ideas detour but i promise yeah. that maybe we can spice up the talk later on with a few more juicy and personalized snipes later on. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> but but <laughs> in general, of course, nationalism can be understood as many things at once. But nationalism at its core uh, represents for me the powerful, po very powerful premise that the legitimacy of the unitary territorialized state. Remember that prior to the 17th century, essentially in Western Europe, but only in the 19th century, there's a kind of this sense of a unitary territorialized state where you have a government enjoying full monopoly, at least formal monopoly over governance, over a territorialized entity. It only emerges in the kind of long arc of modernity. And it is that legitimacy of that territorialized state is derived from what some people call its congruence. And its congruence essentially means like alignment, but I use the word congruence because one of the authorities on nationalism, the famous kind of functional anthropologist Ernst Gellner uses this word in a kind of uh, iconic sentence, but the, its legitimacy is derived from its congruence with the national or ethnic identity of the population. So, I mean, I, I'll try some, I'll attempt to kind of embellish that, elaborate upon that a little. So when when historicizing its emergence, I personally think first of the European nation-making projects of the Romantic, the, the, essentially the early 19th century era, which sealed for me what is an interesting individual come community schema. So an uh, individual community dualism central to modernity. 
So I know it's often misunderstood. So, so remember that romanticism, ideationally, as a kind of realm of ideas and symbolisms, uh, romanticism is equally constitutive of, of modernity as the much more frequently cited enlightenment. And so indeed, romanticism marks a certain kind of counter enlightenment drive, railing against the what was considered the cold and aloof appeal of so-called reason or the abstract sanctity of the individual. So against this, via the idea of nation, essentially, romanticism recuperated this incredibly intoxicating, dizzying emphasis on notions of historical spirit, destiny, this timeless continuity, a poetics of history and destiny. It, it recuperates a sense of collective belonging. So not the abstract individual of the enlightenment, but this collective belonging as suffused by a cultural essence, that there is this cultural whole that ensconces us as a peoplehood. Or even what uh, a guy called Anthony Smith, who I don't actually agree with all that much, but is also considered an authority, but what he usefully names as, quote, the restaging of the sacred. Uh, so essentially romantics recovers a certain kind of poetics. And as was noted cuttingly by, by um, Hannah Arendt, who again is a very useful kind of critical cipher to de demystifying nation. So she notes via Edmund Burke, funnily enough, I, I'm sure this is the first time Edmund <laughs> Burke has been mentioned on your podcast, but you know, he's- I love Edmund Burke. <laughs> you mentioned Elk Skelner and the idea of nation arriving out of this kind of native. So does Anderson's imagined community sit next to Gellner's assessment of that of that emergence of a nation state, or does it oppose it? All right, actually, the, because you mentioned Anderson, I think it's really <laughs> useful. Actually, if I just elaborate a little on this this initial premise, I, I think I can kind of segue into Anderson in a very constructive way, and I think it's absolutely opposite that you raise his notion of uh, imagined communities. So let's disregard Aaron for now. But um, mm. what she essentially argues is that in the kind of 19th century moment, the, the, the so-called freedoms of man being championed by a so-called enlightenment modernity actually amounts to nothing. And it becomes in practice the freedom of the nation or the idea of the nation and crucially its idea of the normative majority or the normative subject. And she goes on to say that the kind of the nation conquers the state. What's interesting is that seen along these terms, nationalism might be the most enduring, explicitly political feature of modernity. So wherever you look, it is the principle of nation that institutionalized the state and where any claim to political legitimacy lies in this invocation of national identity or national coherence. And crucially, and I think this is really important, so we can even circumvent Anderson a bit, many post-colonial theories have deconstructed, and I say this also as someone with Sri Lanka grew up in the crucible of nationalist violence and nationalist antagonisms and essentially a nationalist civil war. But you know, even the former colonies have been encouraged to conceive of and imagine their own liberation and state formation firmly in accordance to the violent nation-state premise with all the forms of you know, nation-making majoritarianism, exclusionary structures, all the forms of nation-making enmity and aversion to particular minorities and outsiders this always requires. So when you say Anderson, it is interesting because for me, of course, the nation primarily obtains meaning through its constitutive outside, through so essentially through differentiating itself from what it understands to be the other, the iconic others, in that negational sense that it starts to obtain a sense of identity and meaning. 
But this is, of course, for those of us raised in a kind of post-colonial race and racism literature or tradition, quite might seem obscenely obvious, certainly to the well-initiated well amongst your listeners. But it is, in, it is to be remembered that the off-sighted authority on the nation's historical specificity, Benedict Anderson, as you rightly raised, Tiso, was himself tellingly blasé about this. So though he understands this to be a yes. very uh, imagined sense of community, and crucially, in that imagined mythology, he centers his idea of horizontal camaraderie. So maybe we can get to that later on, because you hinted at the left. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most seductive things about nation is that it, it imagines ourselves as fundamentally equal and locked in this kind of horizontal solidarity. And this, But even if he sees it as imagined, he sees nation uh, essentially as a benign entity, in my opinion. So there are various moments in the otherwise majestic imagined communities where it seems as if the nation is simply a conduit via which to establish community. So it's a structure of belonging, though itself unique to modernity, it's merely an iteration of a move central to all history, a move that attests to the, the comforts of feeling together, the comforts of having community, or even the realities of communal distinctiveness, and even love, you know, and, and this notion of love, I think is very seductive, and he uses that word in a very poignantly deliberate manner. And in, I think it's right that we already mentioned Paul Gilroy, but it is, you know, it is amid this ultimately sympathetic disposition to nation by people like Anderson and, you know, kind of other champions of Gilroy calls a homely British cultural studies. It is ultimately within that sympathetic disposition that it is to be recalled that I think the daring of Paul Gilroy's Ain't No Black in Union Jack was not simply that it successfully grounded the centrality of a nationalist racism to everyday British political culture, but equally that it spoke against so many implicit assumptions of seemingly the left as well and left critics like Benedict Anderson and others. What your book does and what you've just done there in that like exceptional monologue, Valley, how alluring nationalism is to everyone because of all those things, because of those histories of ideas, everyone wants something to attach themselves to mm. because they've been told that's what you have to do in order to lead a, lead a fulfilling life, mm. whether it's within your everyday or whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your family. I mean, I'm thinking about like Patricia Hill Collins and thinking about the links to the nation and the family as well, like mm. how much these things are so embedded. And I really love that you mentioned love as well, because it's fascinating, but equally scary. And, and this is one of the reasons why we've been trying to talk about this stuff on the podcast is because I feel like I am often susceptible to this stuff, even though I consider myself a lefty. Like I feel mm. like I sometimes, whether it's romanticizing the welfare state, mm. I'd like to think myself against them, but it's so easy to fall into them because it's so alluring. When we look at the history of nationalism, or we're looking back, we're looking back with the, with the benefit of seeing these things as like a, almost like a, a path. And like, so these things seem naturally alluring or this, that. But at the time, when things, these things are happening, did, did it mean that to them? P people who are doing stuff, did it really occur like that? Fantastic. I think that's a really good way of puncturing the the confident distortions of a nationalist mythology. So it always presents yeah. itself as having existed in time immemorial yeah. and having this self-given automatic status. But no, it is absolutely important, as you hint at Tiso, it is fundamental that we see the historicity of the nation. And actually, it is the active investment of the emergent state formation that fully creates and uh, concretizes the nation idea. So this is not only a kind of symbolism and a mythology that it circulates in popular discourse, 
but it actually intervenes in institutions to engender the nation. So one of the, the things historians often mention is the attempts at standardizations of language. So it establishes a unitary language and invests in the institutional apparatuses available to the state to standardize that language. So I know it's a commonplace example, but France is often talked about as the kind of exemplars of the early nation state. But what is extraordinary is how much work was put in to beat down and eradicate all the disparate languages. And, you know, we might call them languages, we might call them dialects, but, you know, it wasn't even a given. They would understand each other. And actually, there are often you can see the historicity of the nation through looking at its margins, where the nation state project is incomplete or failed. So in some senses, Corsica as regards France. So there are, like, you know, the, the, the Corsican language, or if you look at the Basque, or if you look at even, I know it's not particularly prominent, but the, the Breton or Brittany movements. So at, on the margins, you can see, ah, they didn't fully standardize what they were attempting to do. So language is one of these vehicles. The, or a, a kind of institutionalization of state religion, uh, institutionalization of uh, official history through interventions in academia or in kind of school curriculum. So school curriculums become central platforms for the creation and engendering of nation. And that's actually why school his curriculums, particularly around language, but more importantly, history is often a very heated domain because <laughs> essentially nationalists are overinvested, quite understandably, because it's a key organ through which they can engender the nation idea. So I think you're absolutely right to question whether people actually believe that. Um, I, I dare say nobody did, actually. Very few people would have understood themselves as being of that nation. And crucially, returning to my earlier definition, even if they thought there was some kind of ethnic affiliation, it is only in modernity that this idea comes that your ethnic affiliation should be the principle of political legitimacy. So whether you are of the same ethnicity or not was not the terms by which we understand the government to be legitimate or the state to be legitimate. Many other kind of ideas as prefigure modern history, there were different principles about sound governance or, or kind of feudal loyalties or uh, other kind of status hierarchies. But the notion of ethnic congruence was not the basis by which they would have understood their political legitimacy to be derived. I, I know it's a silly point, but there's a perfectly good Monty Python skit about like, retrospectively <laughs> being a king of England going about claiming, ah, hello, subjects. You are my subjects. Don't you know? We are English. I am your king. And, they, and they're, kind of, they're completely baffled by why this man is claiming to be English or of what relevance that is to his... Uh, regal status. Okay, so we've kind of like grounded the nation state in its kind of historicity. Come 1945, it mm. seems like the idea of the nation state in, in, Europe, in a European context seems problematic, right? So for a while, it kind of seems to what, from my understanding, it kind of seems to like not disappear, but it's not at the forefront anymore, as I see it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's evolved into something that, that needs yeah, I, it's, some I, kind of unity in order to avoid nation states getting too powerful. We see the formation of supranational agencies that try mm. to take take those kind of the worst excesses of what Europeans saw as the nation state mm. away and prevent that happening. So the, the formation of the EEC to try mm. and stop that kind of what nation states do, like the kind of marginalization, the territoriality. No, it's really interesting. I mean, I think it's a really complicated debate, to be honest. There are a few things maybe that I could say. Obviously, mm. Britain has a particularly checkered history. I, I gather we're speaking about the EU here, so as an as yeah. exemplar of supranational entities. Yes. But obviously Britain has a particularly checkered and uneasy relationship to any 
form, formalization of a European project. And as it happens, for those of us who are kind of interested in the right, the right tend to unravel on the European question. And this has been the case, Ted Heath, uh, Thatcher onwards. So it's not a particularly unique or Brexit era issue. It has been kind of convulsed right wing nationalist positions over a, a much longer period. So Britain has obviously its imperialist nation formation logics. Um, so that has always kind of balked or flinched at the notion of a kind of European project because it understands its mm. own grandeur through imperial legacies or at least imperial nostalgia. In one way, I would say Britain, 45 onwards, some people argue, I, I don't really agree with him, but you know, David Edgerton's recent book, they argue that actually it is from 45 to 75, 85, that actually a kind of more provincial British national identity as pitched to a nation state project in a more conventional way really takes shape. There is something to be said about that. However, I see what you're saying about the kind of supranational form. What I think people would argue, however, is that essentially, and actually people like, for all its limits, like Habermas and them talk about this, the EU is a very fraught project because it's not clear whether it was trying to mitigate the excesses of the nation state or whether it was trying to pool multiple nation states. So what they call a kind of Europe of fatherlands, and he uses that in a derisory way. Zygmunt Bauman speaks about this, that if, if you are interested in a European project, and I think we can discuss that later, and there are perhaps reasons why the EU should be subject to the same critique that we uh, subject uh, nationalisms to. But nonetheless, you know, Bauman and them argue that if it is going to be a supranational entity, then it can't just be an enlarged version of the nation state, just like the nation state isn't an un enlarged version of the medieval parish. So something qualitatively has to give a new imaginative order that looks beyond the status of community, looks beyond symbolism of ethnic or communal membership or civilizationism, because those are the stock terrain of orthodox nationalisms. And the fear and the problem is that maybe Europe was also trying that. And so it essentially just mimics in form what is a nation state, but ultimately it's too weak because the nation state always has a kind of first movers monopoly on the symbolism of communal and civilizationist identity. But I agree, there are like supranational formations that come through. And I do wonder maybe that's more to do with the heyday of liberal institutionalism. Uh, and so kind of you see all sorts of, inch, what shall we say, a kind of pro-market, pro-capitalist, but essentially liberal institutionalism that thrives across a kind of post-war 30-year, 40-year, maybe you know, even, perhaps even longer there. Clearly, we're no longer there, and there's been a much more revengeous politics. But there is something else that was happening. But I don't think it displaced nationalisms or nation-state logics. It at times tried to mimic it. At times, it did try to thwart it, but in a quite feeble or ineffective way. Mm. Thinking about post-1945 is quite a good place to segment into our next sort of focus of the episode, which is talking more historically and contemporary about the left in Britain. Mm. Um, and I think this has been an important conversation for Tiso and I over the past few years, because I feel like we've been reconciling with our own romanticisation of with the welfare state in particular, because our families were beneficiaries of this, like we probably wouldn't be sat here now without like the state being interventionist but I think one of the things that you do really well in the book value is explain how 
that was part of the nationalist project. I should never have understood it as an emancipatory policy. Mm-hmm. It was about embedding citizens or who's allowed to be a citizen or who's allowed to be a part of a nation. Mm-hmm. And that development of the welfare state, you can't separate that from mm-hmm. empire and colonialism as well and extraction mm-hmm. from the global south, for example. And I think for those of us that see ourselves as like lefties or whatever, like, I think in more recent years, we found ourselves feeling a little bit lost with the way that the left has engaged with endorsed nationalism. Mm. And I think what I think what you do in the book, I think your criticism of Corbynism in particular and the Labour Party, I think it's the best that I've seen so far. And I'm not saying I'm like a fucking like no all on criticisms of the left, but I'm just saying that like sometimes I find the criticisms of Corbynism quite fluffy. But I feel like when you talk about, like, you're really clear, like, when he's presenting the possibility of socialism and a more equitable nation, again, the nation, Mm. it seems like something that we should be endorsing. But actually, like, what you do in the book is show how actually flawed that project was. And also the inevitability of what happened after 2019. So after the general election in 2019, we lose to a landslide victory to the Tories, Jeremy Corbyn steps down. But the left then start to diagnose the issue and they diagnose the issue basically by throwing ethnic minorities under the bus again. Mm. And then migrants. And my, yeah, exactly. The one thing I do remember growing up is nationalism, right? That's mm. the one thing I remember in my local activity. So regardless of whether you were left or right, we didn't want Asians here. That was yeah. always a consistent yeah. theme. When people yeah. spoke to me, depending on what house I went into, Mm. They'll have either the sun or, or the mirror because yeah. it's a working class area. So the sun will obviously conservative. The mirror was a Labour part paper at the time. Mm. They, you had your party allegiances. But when it came to certain issues, the only yeah. thing that mattered yeah. was the other. These places were abandoned and you could see that over the 80s, industrialised, etc, etc. But the one thing that remained was that nationalism. So when football came on, England, I supported England. This was always at the forefront. Again, we can only understand our past by looking back in hindsight. But when I look back now, it's quite clear because I'm more aware of it, but it's quite clear that's the only thing that was present there. The politics didn't really matter. It became about management as long as they maintained that status quo. And if they didn't maintain that status quo, people voted with their feet. Ah, It's really illuminating listening to both of you speak on that. I mean, there's a lot to say here. But I, I'm just really encouraged that you immediately identified what I think the mi- migrant issue or the issue of immigration and the border is, in fact, the central object of racial nationalism over the last two decades. 100%. And I think sometimes when we take our cues from conversations elsewhere, we get distracted to a certain extent of how heavily invested right-wing hegemony is on the issue of immigration. This is their preferred ground. This is where they've consolidated extraordinary populist majorities and a kind of uh, consolidated a significant amount of its hegemonic position. So I, I think it's really important. And of course, we have mutual friends like Nadine Elenani and um, you know even Nandita Sharma's book right now around home rule, the kind of nativist migrant divide. This is the integral theme, in my opinion, if you want to kind of unpack the state of contemporary British political culture. Now, of course, you've said a lot about the left, and I suppose, yeah, I'll be really willing to talk about that. But I think maybe I just want to caveat or talk with a little care, 
So one thing is, of course, one element of the welfare state project we should absolutely defend. I don't think you should be overly contrite about your romanticism. A key thrust of the welfare state project is the best of social democracy, perhaps even the best of socialism, whatever term you prefer. But that spirit of the political energy or the political principle that the welfare state champions is something we really should harness and cherish and try to replay in a 21st century guise. However, you're absolutely right to acknowledge that the limits of that project, because it gets tied to an underlying British nationalism and an English nationalism, is something we'll always have to deconstruct. And unfortunately, in the contemporary guise, the romanticism of the welfare state is increasingly less and less about the nitty gritty of a welfare state, i.e. high taxation, public spending, uh, dignified labor, nationalization, but in, instead it's a romanticism around a figure of a kind of mythologized white working class of the kind of 1950s, 60s. And that, that's entirely reactionary work. So we want to disentangle the kind of the political principles that a welfare state represents from the mythologization and symbolization of a particular kind of normative subject. So, but if we, if we want to really speak about the left, and I actually should also say that, you know, like I, perhaps why you enjoyed the critique of Corbynism is that I was also articulating that critique as a sympathetic friend. Um, you know, yeah. I, I was very invested in Corbynism in my own private and perhaps limited way, but, you know, I even found myself campaigning for it and so on. So it was also a moment of great hope. And I think always in kind of political, when we articulate ourselves politically and do analysis, we should try to, embrace things warts and all but then kind of constructively critique it about its compromised nature and its complicities so that's just one caveat but thinking more broadly i think it's best in my opinion to disentangle essentially four genres three to four genres of what you rightly identify chantelle as kind of leftist apologism and increasingly in the post-2019 collective wake that the left underwent, how quick they raced back to the kind of comforts of nation. And it was actually Brexit that lost it for us. And we need to recover the red wall and where Keir Starmer and his crowd are now very happy to give every appeal to English patriotism, a kind of envious centrist caress. So all of that is, is of course, happening. But I think there are essentially four genres. So, you know, the first of these, I think it's a kind of very cheap version, but it's essentially party political expediency. So they see stronger appeals to nationalist issues such as anti-immigration, maybe even Islamophobia, e even things like the problems of multiculturalism or ethnic diversity. They, they see the appeal to that as merely a basis to strengthen electoral viability. They're just kind of shameless opportunists. They're not necessarily invested in themselves, but they see it as a kind of strategic battleground. The second, and you also hinted at this already, is this kind of romanticized symbolic identification with the working class. So this, this crowd, which is a kind of melancholic romantic crowd, they are very happy to submit or accept, submit to the mediation of the working class figure as being exclusively white, as being exclusively nationalist, as being exclusively socially conservative. And that's a term the blue labor crowd is very happy to use now. And interestingly of late, as being exclusively provincial. I think there's something quite interesting happening our kind of nationalist, the geography of nationalist discourse, where they're increasingly keen to bring out a dichotomy versus the feral and unruly and aloof cities versus the kind of proud, noble, and humble towns and provinces. And that's the, where they kind of spatialize or locate the ideal nationalist modest subject. And this style of left commentary 
you know, what's really galling here for anyone on the left, this style of left commentary invokes class, but just as it empties it of any socioeconomic or materialist consequences or ramifications. So they seem to draw on a language of class, but only for symbolic and, you know, kind of cultural, for, for cultural aims. And this relates, I think, to what is emerging as a kind of post-Marxist. So this is the third version, a post-Marxist intelligentsia. So people like Wolfgang Streich in Germany, who's actually kind of really trained and literate in a kind of leftist language, but also more charlatan types like Angela Nagel and so on, if you have the misfortune to read them. <laughs> who, who, you know, in my opinion, she's not nearly as kind of involved or versed in the kind of left Marxist commentary, but she's essentially a grifter. So she's kind of trying to forging a career as a, as a left apologist or left nationalist apologist. But they read immigration and things like multiculturalism or cosmopolitanism, they see it as constituted, constitutive of a neoliberal project. So in turn, for them to be anti-neoliberal or anti-capitalist simply entails for them a rehabilitation of communitarian principles. So here, you know, Marxism ceases to be interested in its much more orthodox fare, stuff like... Um, you know, the structures of global accumulation, commodification, labor exploitation, and not the, the simple kind of global forms of human disposability. Instead, Marxism, you know, it's, it just simply reads the task of anti-capitalism as coterminous with the consolidation of national identity, national borders, national nationalist symbolism. So it's a really cheap, what shall we say, disingenuous bastardization of left critique and working class uplift for entirely nationalist purposes. Maybe if we have time, I'll mention just the final one. I think there is also a fourth genre, which is perhaps a little more redeemable. And this is one that reads what it sees the electorate's turn or some elements of the electorate, their turn to nationalism as a deformed projection of kind of some kind of anti-capitalist impulses, anxieties. So they intimate that the so-called misdirected anti-capitalist cry needs to be harnessed, needs to be navigated, but in their defense, ultimately redirected. So they want to harness these nationalist cues, but put it back into play for a left project. Unfortunately, all of them end up, you know, they all become equally relevant to imbuing the nationalist resurgence with an extraordinary ennobling and dignifying language of, of class suffering, class injury, class rebellion, and you know various so-called anti-establishment motifs, you know, and these things have become really decisive for how a remade political right um, currently orients its hegemonic position. I think it's and it's very difficult for many of us to navigate this terrain because nationalism itself presents itself as the politics of the un underdog, the downtrodden, the so-called left behind. It presents itself as anti-hegemonic. And what it really does particularly well of late, it classes people like us as the elites, as the aloof intellectuals, <laughs> yeah. as the kind of lifestyle metropolitan liberal. Extraordinary inversion. And it's, it's really winning for them. One of the things that I think feeds into this nationalism that kind of, it kind of sits, I don't know if it sits alongside it, is the kind of crisis that you that kind of like the industrialization brings up of the crisis in masculinity uh, in that kind of the men's rights movements that kind of idea where you feel the people that have hegemonic power feel that they are the victims like yeah. you kind of say, it's an inversion that I, it's hard to argue against like it's, it's difficult for me to kind of grapple and like i said i have these arguments with people quite frequently they position themselves as a victim and mm. they they grasp onto the idea of the idea of I was reading some 
books about Nazi Germany, how they promised to kind of rescue the man. This idea of rescuing masculinity, this mm. idea of rescuing the worker, I'll give the working man a job. So mm. the idea that working man to be that a job, so I'm going to bring back traditional men were learning to labour, but now they're learning to service. But now we're going to bring back labour, so men can have real work to do, real men jobs to do. Mm. And it was encapsulated in, in kind of the Nazi Germany, and I can see this in the kind of the kind of speeches that like those kind of men's rights activists, this, this kind of need, the nation needs to bring back real jobs for real but men. They're not activists, they're fascists, <laughs> sexists, fascist. well, well, yeah, racists. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is very hard to argue. I mean, just to attend to your the latter point, it is no coincidence that increasingly what we call the alt-right has two twin projects. One is the restoration of kind of masculinist character and a kind of masculinist uplift. So it's a revengeist politics. And then a parallel to that, of course, a very kind of orthodox nationalist politics presented as a restoration project that things have gone mm-hmm. extraordinarily awry and and we have been left unmoored and of course these things meet and become they, they, they converge in, a, in very seductive ways where you know nation has always been a gendered project too and i think chantelle said this towards the end of this towards the beginning of this interview or this podcast and as sophie lewis said just recently but many have argued you know kind of feminist critics that the nation kind of scales up the symbolic order and clarity of the family scales up that patriarchal structure and its tidy order at the level of communitarianism at the level of the state mm-hmm. through the ethos of nation and yes uh, and the alt-right thinks it's doing recovery work as a result but it is exceptionally good at denigrating its critics aloof lifestyle, you know, kind of uh, degenerate cosmopolitan. So, and it's not unique to England. This is everywhere in India, you know, to be seen as Mm -hmm. anti-national is an extraordinary accusation. It it kind of pitches you as this suave, effet (laughs) intellectual, and the whole project of critique becomes tarnished or dismissed in this very effective denigration. You know, but we don't have to look at the all tried. Obviously, someone like David Goodhart was rehearsing this already in the 2000s to extraordinarily good effect. You know, it's a tortured neologism, and I don't want to dignify it by mentioning it here, but we'll do so. But, you know, this idea of the somewheres as good old salt-of-the-earth yokels, like it's awfully patronizing, actually. So it's like the simpletons who live in the rural countries or in the provinces, and then this really supposedly well-educated, jet-setting, cosmopolitan elites as the anywheres, those who have no home, who reject the nation. So it really, really galvanizes to very productive effect this idea that the nationalists are the victims, the patriots are the victims, those who find membership in the nation are the victims, and those who, those who dissent are elites. And of course, you're absolutely right to, to mention the formative themes of German fascism. You know, the, the, the anti-Semitism did exactly the same work, but even notions of the Jugend press and so on, where the media, at any point where even just a liberal media, which isn't particularly radical, but might articulate some kind of residual anti-nationalist critique, it's seen as some kind of de- elite conspiracy, uh, that the media itself is, is this hostile force. And we're increasingly seeing that even the all these residues of liberal friction, even though we don't identify, but even these residues of liberal friction are increasingly in the crosshairs 
of the authoritarian nationalists, be it the judiciary, be it the universities, and certainly the humanities, uh, be it the media, be it even be something like BBC, where all of us have our critiques of the BBC, but of course the principal critique is aired not by us, but by the authoritarian nationalist right. So you can see how it kind of tries to frame a convenient version of the elite, which it is announcing war upon in the name of the common people and the ordinary working people. That was amazing. <laughs> but one of the things, I can't believe we're nearly an hour already. Whoa, and one really? of the things that, <laughs> I know, we're literally nearly an hour. One of the things that I really, like, we really, really want you to give us a couple of your reflections and thoughts on is this current moment. What does nationalism look like during and post COVID-19, if there ever is a post COVID-19? Mm. And also thinking about drawing that to the efficiency of nationalism and thinking about that moment, I think it was at the end of November 2019, when Jeremy Corbyn released a document that basically detailed how the Conservative Party had planned to increase the privatisation of the NHS Mm. in comparison with what we have seven months later with people clapping on their doorsteps for the NHS having voted for this government, which they know are going to privatise it. And then people now the NHS being used as this like nationalist symbol mm. of like rising no, no. unity. When I read people like Gilroy or even Francis Fukuyama's like triumphalism, saying like the, the, the nation state's dead, like this thing, the triumph, the transnationalism. Mm. It seems the nation state hasn't gone nowhere, right? So, mm. and as we kind of established, the nation state is firmly t- tied to modernity, and there's ideals of modernity. So the ideas of the outsider and the other. So is it possible to ever go beyond? the nation state because we seem to be dreaming we dream that we can go beyond it Mm. but in actuality the historical record shows that we Mm. revert back to it time Mm. and time again and it's reflected in what Chantel just said just now wow okay so do you mind if I attempt a relatively long answer again so you open up so much there so let's talk about COVID-19 NHS but also kind of internationalist futures so let you know let us be fair about COVID-19. It, I think in some ways, there has been some public comment, commentary that has suggested that the rights winning use of nationalist frames has been somewhat disrupted by COVID-19. Insofar as, you know, I think it is partly true. Um, you know, populist nationalism does appear okay, relatively muted in insofar as it see as an entire form populist nationalism seems seems uneasy when having to contend with actual crisis as opposed to crises that are just simulated you know i mean i don't know by what are good examples here but you know simulated via the ridiculous notion of eurabia or you know immigrants raiding the collective treasure or even just something as ridiculous or absurd as kind of foreign languages raiding the sorry foreign languages kind of running roughshod over over dulcet england um or, or you know, even on the brexit matter just like eu largest at british expense so uh, this populist nationalist class epitomized by johnson and cummings of they're just essentially eternally campaigning they, all they are is like a well-oiled campaigning machine which appeals to notions of nation and white grievance as a kind of permanent political position. So it was interesting that Bojo was just giving a talk at the school and it's meant to be a kind of reflection on the absolute debacle that the algorithm was and he kind of starts riffing on Rule Britannia and and Harry Potter because that's 
you know, the populace can only reach for rhetoric and this is where they thrive. So in some ways, COVID-19 has been an extremely bracing humiliation. But of course, all of us do fear that, you know, something like, you know, the nationalists are simply biding their moment, only briefly wrong-stepped by the sudden recourse of some kind of public health accountability or public health collectivist imperatives. So, you know, in the broader sense, the pandemics era does unfortunately seem conducive for the proverbial de-globalists, as they're called, to have their alt-right say, to entrench the primacy of the nation state as the only structure that is worthwhile in any such crisis situation, to, to engage in protectionist scrambles for select health resources, which I don't know if you've seen, but some people are calling this vaccine nationalism. But not least, as you've already alluded to, this need to retrench the validity of the border. So, you know, as regards this, the latter, consider how COVID-19 offers nationalists a kind of winning card, really, to, to conclusively condemn the peril of, of human mobility. And, and it is striking for me that even in progressive circles, the need for the border to be closed and policed has become a commonplace reflex. And even if this might seem reasonable, in all honesty, as a kind of, in the immediacy of COVID-19, as a, as a necessity to, to uh, as an alleged necessity to contain transmission, I do think it is right for all of us to belong to the other political camp to worry about the wider ramifications of this, of this sensibility, particularly, as you guys have already mentioned, the border and immigration has indeed been the central object of all the kind of nationalist or racial nationalist demagoguery over the last decade. Secondly, and I don't think this is mentioned enough in our circles, I, I am struck how prominently China is being profiled. I, it is evident, I think, that China, particularly given its economic and political threat, we're en entering a kind of world historical antagonism. And China is likely to be figured with an extraordinary prominence as, as viral pariahs, you know, drawing on all colonial lines of racial peril and, and Sino menace. But the wider purpose of checking the increased clout of China's market position had, you know, it has, had already been previewed by the tariff wars, you know, Trump's tariff war, what he's spearheaded as the tariff wars or the technology wars via Huawei and so on, which Tiso will know all about given his kind of phone fixations. Um, He's not 5G. I've got the virus, 5G virus. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, in my opinion, <laughs> so that was already happening. And we, you already saw this kind of jockeying for a kind of belligerent position against the emergence of China as this economic and political power that cannot be denied. Um, but it does seem like the COVID-themed frothing does suggest that this reckoning, this Anglo-American reckoning, or this failed state reckoning with the power of Chinese capitalism is finally finding its moment, finally finding its contingencies. And I, I know, like, maybe you guys are not as kind of invested in the kind of European political discourse, but I try to read, like, the German papers and so on. So, um, so I mean, you know, Build, which is that kind of notorious mid-market tabloid, they have been absolutely frenzied. And there's been a distinct escalation amid the COVID moment of an anti-China China frenzy or hysteria. You know, Bill is even calling with no hint of irony for reparations and damages to be, to be paid by to be paid by China. Uh, I mean, good luck with that. But nonetheless, I've had like reasonable people, like people that are peers or friends, literally engage in direct anti-Chinese racism 
like cheat as, as if it's just like something that's okay and using words like reparations <laughs> it's, it, I, it, I, I was literally taken aback i was like whoa oh, what the hell is this in relation to what our conversation here about nation states is that when i've heard talk people talk about china i've also heard people posit an alternative to the nation state they posit the idea of civilizational state that's what china represents versus us the nation state so <laughs> i was like wow like that's kind of blew my mind so like the nation state is like they said that this timeless thing, but China says we've got a three thousand year history and we're we're one we're the Han dynasty yeah, and yeah. we're one defined ethne and this is very clear that this this is the civilizational state is the way forward. So we exclude people who do not match our civilization quota. And it's quite interesting that all this talk about China is reflective on their notion of what the state is and how they see themselves. Well, I mean, uh, so that's a, a slightly different angle, but I think it is important. So. Of course, China itself is an incredibly significant power emerging, certainly in, in Asia, but of course, as many people have known, engaging in all sorts of what, you know, what shall we say, kind of exploitative practices across the global south uh, uh, as, relevant to their, <laughs> as relevant to their kind of increased influence. And but you know many people rightly characterize the current Chinese government as a, a very nationalist position and calling upon a very kind of as you say Han civilizationist position by which to consolidate this new project as it enters goes through the 21st century. But I suppose from the European perspective or the Western perspective, it is increasingly interesting how China is being used or being positioned as its very significant reference point. And I think unfortunately the 21st century nationalisms from within the West will now be endowed with this reheated sinophobia, but on a much grander scale, endowing yeah. with these nationalisms with a new kind of civilizationist reference and scope that will have much wider 21st century saliences. So I do think COVID-19 is a moment to try to uh, early entry into the type of kind of political discourse and machinations that are emerging vis-a-vis -vis the rise and uh, significance of China. But I'm also aware that you me you mentioned the NHS and so on. I think that is absolutely vital, and I'm really glad you raised that. Because what is, of course, dispiriting for so many of us is that after all the kind of initial attempts of the current administration towards the kind of Malthusian dithering herd immunity kind of pro-market or market first uh, neglect and dereliction at least once it's once some kind a slightly saner political voice emerged and where the nhs kind of was foregrounded as central to this moment of course many on the left or the center left quickly identify this as a quite productive moment so it reminds us of the public state of public spending about the violences and uh, uh, of the market, marketization and neoliberal policies where the NHS has been so grossly fragmented and, 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 and underfunded, and particularly if you extended that critique to our care home structures. But what, what was really disillusioning was how quickly this iconography of, or the prominence of the NHS was quickly recycled or redirected into a very civic nationalist stagecraft. So as, yeah. Will, uh, as, as Will Davis wrote on a quite very nice, I think, long read, as it was, this became suddenly a matter of patriotism. And even, I'm sure everyone was, a lot of people were slightly cynical about the Thursday night clapping, but I think everyone saw in it, in it some hope. There was a kind of public ethos there also in the clapping, but that quickly, quickly dissipated and it became a quite kind of nation-making ritual 
uh, and the way that obviously with Boris Johnson's own illness, how quickly that entire moment of the NHS's and the care workers' prominence became instead a very cheap kind of civic nationalist ritual, which was very easy for them to write back into a kind of World War II melancholia. And increasingly, as they started talking about the blip spirit and Dunkirk and so on, and what was particularly ominous was the really hammy escalation of uh, the VE Day celebrations. <laughs> I love looking back on this a few months over because me and Z were literally, oh, there was like steam coming out of our heads. You could see the class distinction. So the people who were working class were sitting around with their cans of beer. By the corner, you had people who were having tea parties. The working class people had painted their signs, but working mm. class people had bought theirs. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so blatant it was so blatant and it was such engineered like yeah. nationalism like it was so Michael Binnick must have been like in but, malfunctioning because it's just so when these things are occurring right I don't think people are smart enough to be coordinated are these things is it the unintended consequence of policy or is this sometimes an intentional way of maintaining power and I definitely understand it's intentional I I definitely understand the political expediency part of it right 100% but we already questioned the idea of that this idea of national belonging this idea it's like Mm. an idea of an imagined community Mm. like this you could probe that so I always ask the question so are these people that smart right that that Mm. smart to kind of pull on all these levers at once to engender this project they love power and control and they know how to manipulate I don't really know if I have an answer, but the way I would characterize it mm. is that I think contemporary right-wing hegemony, at least, or what remains of hegemony, nationalism is all they have. I mean, they've over-invested in it, but it's also what they do really well. I mean, mm-hmm. it is striking that the 2019 ele- election campaign, the general election campaign, hardly ceased to be a campaign in conventional... They didn't do anything. It was they just... Yeah, it was just the tan, you know, the the mantra of get Brexit done, repeated like a a tantric hymn, and that that was all. And but it was really loaded because all that that very pithy phrase, merely three words, was all they needed because it was a symbolic cipher for all the kind of coded references about immigration, about Islamophobia, about post-colonial nostalgia or melancholia about the kind of the slow decline which they refused to to reconcile themselves to so get brexit done was the kind of king making rhetoric that spoke to the only hegemonic position they have so i think it is interesting of course they kind of piled into ve day even i know it's you know captain tom i, I believe that's what he's called but you know it's 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 obviously a very spirited charity effort and no one should, uh, it would be churlish of me to denigrate that. But the, the very quick way in which a kind of a, a nationalist media apparatus was able to swoop in with such ease and rewrite it or plug it back into a, a World War II melancholy. And obviously World War II and Churchillism and so on is one of the dominant symbolic motifs of this contemporary uh, nationalist personnel. You know, half of them are hell-bent on a kind of Churchill tribute act from what I understand. And even Tony Abbott, who they've kind of, I, I don't want to get distracted, but who they've kind of drafted in from Australia, who's kind of arc, right? Oh, he's coming, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, but you know, his hero is Churchill and so on. There's a, it is quite striking that they are, this is their kind of political pivot 
and the importance of World War II, Churchillism, nostalgic whiteness, and so on. But it's all they have. And so they commit to it at every opportunity. I, I, I also think it's interesting. I don't want to speculate too much about the new cycle, but it seemed to me that this current right post-March, so what we will call the kind of COVID moment or the COVID threat, post-March, it really felt to me that they only recovered their confidence fully in the latest wave of migrant bashing. Oh, God, yeah. Because yeah. that was their favorite terrain. And it was interesting how sure they felt about the language of invasion and the language of the drafting in the Navy and militarization and, and the kind of the footage they wanted to circulate about uh, boats and so on. I, so again, it showed to me, or it, at least maybe I'm too sensitive to reading things in this way, but it seemed to me that these are their preferred terms when they operate in a in an efficient manner. So VE Day was very telling and interesting. What was funny is I believe in one of the kind of right wing columns, they kind of it was a it was a mistake, but it's a very revealing mistake. But they had named it as victory over Europe, as opposed to what I understand to be the victory in Europe day. So even that is a kind of revealing slip about how how. Uh, what shall we say, how fertile this ground is for them as an entry into a much wider nationalist hegemony that they are pretty good or very good at rallying. You remember, do you, I don't know if you had this value, but like campaigning last year for mm. the Labour Party mm. and having people like literally on the door saying to you, get Brexit done. Exactly. And it's when I had like the 10th person say that to me <laughs> in white suburb. In white suburbia, yeah. I was no, like, you're not ready so we might actually lose this because Johnson mm. and Co have not done fucking anything apart mm. from say get Brexit done. And I've got people that are mm. just saying that to me um, on their doorstep. Those points about the simplicity, but importance and the connection people have to that nationalism, like scary, it's so scary. Ultimately speculative, but important and idealistic question about a post-nationalist moment or an internationalist mm -hmm. moment. But I think it's also worth saying that the kind of 21st century struggles that await us are already afoot are really inconvenient for the nationalist position. So, you know, nationalist myopia remains, for instance, in the COVID moment, fatally compromised in, in the face of pandemics. It, it, it not only refuses to contend with the distinctly global scale of the problem, but only looks for solutions to kind of both the pandemic, but even disrupted economic flows at the level of national consolidation. So it is at, it is at best, it is a project that can best postpone crises, even as it allows crises to multiply. Um, how else can I put it like? A, a nationalist rendition of crisis response can only ever place the problem elsewhere, refusing to acknowledge the metonymic or microcosmic equivalent of the problem as it already sits within. So, you know, borders and fortifications are utterly illusory. And, you know, the, the crises that borders and fortifications shape to repel is always all already inside. And this is, of course, a well-documented irony that nationalism might intensify just as the problems it contends with are, all, are so indelibly imminent. And so COVID-19 shouldn't be seen only as a kind of health disaster or catastrophe or a pandemic issue. It's, of course, a primer or a prelude to climate catastrophe, a climate breakdown. 
So just like the challenges of climate breakdown, or even just capitalism, so capitals, fleet-footed ability to escape governance, escape jurisdiction, escape uh, taxation, the, the threat of pandemics too requires a radically global, radically post-imperial scale of, of accountability in action. So I also think the scale of these problems that the 21st century asks to be contended with might might begin to remind people and certainly kind of the opposition, the anti-nationalist opposition, that we can no longer afford any equivocation about nationalism's illusory merits or bend to the practic seemingly practical certainty of its existence. And in that way, I think climate, climate breakdown, the kind of sclerotic state of capitalism, all of that also might excite an anti-nationalist imagination as the only terms to grapple with, with the scale of the issues that are indelibly global or indelibly imminent. And I also think there's a generational antagonism at play. I'm really, for me, I'm really excited by how many people under a certain age, I would venture that even under 50, let's say under 40 at the very least, how resistant they are to the invitations to nationalism. I know it's not everybody, but such a significant share of that generation is being radicalized along a kind of position which is very, in many instances, very progressive, but also due to their own habituation of multiculture or a certain pop culture that has anti-racism as a quite in intuitive motif or element of that culture that they inhabit or uh, consume, that I see great hope in the, the sharpening of these generational antagonisms. And I actually think the more that the populist nationalisms play to the solace of nation, the more that they alienate all those who see no solace in it. Oh, sick. What a way to finish episode 100. Man, sweating, man, sweating from talking, sweating, and I'm just sitting there talking. Every time I see value, I just sit down and I'm like, right, I need some political therapy. Like, can you tell me how things are going to get better? And it's like, you take us on this journey. Oh, you guys are far too kind. You always end on hope, and that is what we need so, so badly in this moment. So thank you so much for joining us, Valley. Thank you um, for having me. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us for 100 episodes. It's been emotional. Patrons, you've got another mini-sode coming up. Valley's going to stay with us. But for everyone else, we'll be back again next week with episode 101. Bye, guys. Bye, Bye all. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.